If you have the ability to communicate with someone different than you, in a context that may be very different than what you are familiar or comfortable with, you get to change your entire experience of what the world looks like. And the richness of taking the time wherever you are in life, it never ends when you decide that you want to invest in lifelong learning. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Fatima Sumar joins us to discuss her past as a Cornell student, the challenges in combating global poverty, and the transformative power of language. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are very excited and honored to have Fatima Sumar with us in the studio today. A Cornell alum, Fatima currently serves as the executive director of the Center for International Development at Harvard University. In addition to that, she is an author, diplomat, and founder of our very own translator-interpreter program. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Fatima. I'm so excited to be here. What, a, what an honor to be back on this beautiful campus yeah. on this lovely fall day. Yeah. Well, we'd love to get things rolling by having you share your background and your journey with languages for our listeners. Great. Well, um, you know, when I came up here at Cornell, I was an undergrad. I graduated many years ago. I won't predate <laughs> myself with the year. But I always came here knowing I wanted to be a global citizen mm. and engage in the world. Um, and that didn't always mean to me that I had to live abroad, mm-hmm. but it meant that I needed to care at a local level, at a national and a global level. And for me, as a first-generation immigrant here into the United States, I came over when I was quite young um, and as someone that was exposed to a lot of different languages and cultures from an early age, I knew that language was going to be an important medium mm-hmm. in which we could com- not just communicate, but really understand different cultures. Sure. And so... One of the things that really excited me about my journey here in Ithaca and here at Cornell was the richness and the abundance in Mm -hmm. many ways of the different language programs that we have here, which is maybe unrivaled in the world in many ways. Um, And so I really kind of threw myself into language learning uh, when I came up here. Yeah, very nice. Well, and one other thing that you did and, and you threw your entire self into this is the translator interpreter program. Um. What did you learn from that experience that has benefited you in your professional and your diplomatic life? You know, often um, when we think about languages, you know, often as students, we think about my job is to learn as many languages as Mm -hmm. possible, or at least to get one down in addition (laughs) to your dominant language. And certainly that was my journey in the beginning. I studied quite a few of them and at different parts of my teenagehood and adulthood, I used some of them in different settings where I could. But ultimately, especially, you know, someone who lives in the United States, it can be hard to really be in an immersive environment Mm. where you're using that constantly. And so especially as you get older, if you don't use languages, you tend to forget. Mm -hmm. But even if you're not the one to be able to use it all the time or speak it all the time, which has been my up and down um, Mm. in the terms of my career, One of the things that really drew me to the translator-interpreter program and the idea of it uh, when I was a junior here in college was that 
we could use our connections, our community with each other and use language to communicate. Mm. And so, um, you know, the story was actually really simple. One day I was on campus and I read a local headline story from the Tompkins County News, which mm-hmm. is the, the county here in upstate New York where Cornell is situated. And it said a local family that did not speak English suffered some um, indignity. I can't remember if it was a fire or hospital or mm-hmm. some journey. And when paramedics reached the scene, they couldn't communicate with them because their language was of medium was not English. Yeah. And um, because of that, they had a dramatic setback in mm. ways that were 100% preventable. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, I sit up here on top <laughs> of the hill, yeah, literally right. and physically, yeah. and down below the hill mm-hmm. are all these communities that don't speak English. Mm-hmm. And up on the hill are all these communities that do speak all those other languages. How yeah. do we connect them? And so I'm saying that because sometimes our, we're not going to actually be the ones that are the expert on thing X. Sure. And I certainly do not claim to be a linguistic expert in almost <laughs> any language, including English. <laughs> but I can connect, mm-hmm. right? My power mm-hmm. in that moment as a junior in college was to say that I know I have these different resources. I can see them in front of me. I can see what the yeah. university has. I can see yeah. what the town and the county have. And I can think about ways to connect mm-hmm. them. And so that's really where the translator-interpreter program was born, mm-hmm. um, was just with this idea, was could we connect the resources from the top of the hill to those needed at the bottom of the yeah. hill? And it is such a wonderful program. I have been nothing but impressed with the students who run this every year. They have been recognized with the Perkins Award um, just this past spring, during which they announced that TIP is going global, and we will have a, a podcast episode about that next season. But it is it is so wonderful that you recognize that need and that you were willing to make those connections and and launch something that truly, to me, is a is a transformational resource that um, the the students and the the campus community provides to the community at large. Well, I'm really humbled that students took it forward. You know, oftentimes yeah. you have ideas and true. maybe you have an idea and maybe you do something with the idea mm-hmm. and maybe the idea even lands somewhere. But it's not often that institutions will take the courage and mm-hmm. the leadership to take them forward even yep. after you depart. Yep. And so one of the lessons I think with TIP, but also for all of us listening who are really interested in community level change mm-hmm. is that the power of institutions and people to keep things going, to deepen the learnings, to scale things up yeah. after you see successes and learn from those mistakes as well. And so I just want to say, you know, huge congratulations to all the students over the last 22 years yeah. that have kept it going, that have grown the program, that have scaled it up, that have learned the lessons of what went wrong in the yeah. early days mm-hmm. and fixed them, that have been culturally attuned to the needs yep. and driven not by their own desires to have impact, but by the real needs in the community. Mm-hmm. I really do think these things take a village. And in this case, it takes institutions as well to really care enough to take yeah. it, to move it forward. Otherwise, ideas die on the vine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I am really humbled that, you know, in the case of language learning and using mediums of language to communicate with communities that students across generations mm-hmm. um, and administrators. I, I want to give the staff and the administration oh, here at Cornell yep. um, enormous um, recognition of what it takes to keep these things moving and to really invest in local needs of communities. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So 
we also want to ask about um, your time both as, as a private citizen and working in the United States government. One of your major concerns has been global poverty and how to address and repair that. Was there a specific catalyst for that particular area of focus? Was your studies or your diplomatic experience? Um, tell us about that. So, you know, I am one generation removed from poverty myself, and it's really my parents that grew up in in poverty back home in Malaysia and in India, and they took a lot of risk and courage, like many people around the world, and their own stories of migration Mm -hmm. as they immigrated here to the United States in the 70s and the 80s. And so growing up as a child with a foot in lots of different worlds, visiting family back home, seeing and reading stories, this was very personal to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't take for granted that, you know, I'm, I am uh, I now get to experience incredible privilege every single day mm-hmm. in the areas that I get to work on, um, the communities I live in, but that it could have been a really different story. So first, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm firsthand, you know, of example of um, what both hard work, success, and a whole lot of luck can produce, Mm -hmm. and I get to benefit from that in in the work I do. Um, For me, it's been about how do I pay that back, but how do I also create opportunities for others at scale? Mm -hmm. At the center where I work, I work at the Center for International Development at Harvard University, and one of the things that drives me every single day in the work that we do at CID is that our mission is to build a thriving world for all. Mm. And what that means, um, in a very kind of simple, provocative sense, is that in in a lot of places you hear about fighting poverty and anti-poverty programs to get people out of poverty. And, And certainly for someone who's worked on that for many years of her career, that's of interest. But what's more of interest is not just for people to survive, and not die. Mm -hmm. But what does it take for them to thrive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does it take for them to not just be at the minimal poverty lines or the little above that or $3 above that? What does it take for them to see their full incredible potential if only you invest in them? Mm -hmm. And how do you get them to go from surviving to thriving? Mm -hmm. And that's the work I get to now do every single Mm -hmm. day. And it comes from experiences that um, I've had in the in the in in the, the world of practice as a former diplomat, as a former development official, but it comes also with the incredible expertise of our faculty, who have now get to do the research sure. and do the research mm-hmm. every single day in some of the hardest places yeah. around the world. Oh, this is this is such important work, and it's wonderful that you are doing this. And and yeah, thank you for everything you have been doing and for what you continue to do. So there was an article um, you wrote earlier this year where you discussed rapidly growing wealth inequities in the United States and the world, particularly in large English-speaking countries, as well as in China and India. Can you talk about the causes of the widening wealth gap and the impacts it has on a global community? So, you know, when we think about poverty, often we think today about those that are the most disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alongside poverty, what you're really seeing, especially as the numbers of extreme poverty come down, which they have quite significantly from, you know, where we were just in the 1960s, for instance, what you are really seeing is exploding inequality in many countries around the world, including here in the United States. So to put this in context, here in the United States, the 10 percent of the top income earners here take home nearly half of all the income of all Americans. Right. And the richest 10% of all households own more than 70% of all the wealth in this country. Oh, wow. 
right? <laughs> so think about for most Americans who work hard, who try to put away for mm-hmm, savings, mm-hmm. who try to create opportunities for their children, most of them will find it very difficult to break into that top sure. 10% of wealth yeah. creation. That's here in the United States. And the United States is one of the most unequal countries right now huh. in the world. Um, but we're seeing we're seeing this happen in so many other um, rich countries and middle-income countries mm-hmm. as well. You know, oftentimes you have this image of poverty just being in a handful of countries that look sure. a certain way oh, sure. or are situated in certain geographic regions. Yep. We all have this kind of maybe caricature mm-hmm. or stereotype of what yeah. we think about the poor. Yep. But in fact, the poor can be anywhere and everywhere. They can look any color, any race. They can speak any language, including English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be right here in our own backyard mm-hmm. um, because you do see such wealth inequality and um, unequal wealth levels of distribution. Let me put this in context of the global stage, mm-hmm. right? So you have such extreme wealth inequality today, and this is concentrated in the hands of a very few. Think about your billionaire class. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Oxfam, they came out with a statistic last year that a new billionaire is created every 26 hours, <laughs> right? Every wow. 26 hours. Um, that means that inequality is so extreme that the world's 10 richest men possess more wealth than 3.1 billion poorest people, according to this Oxfam report. Wow. Um, you know, there's no way for majority of not just Americans, but anyone in the world that you could work that hard ever. Mm-hmm. There's not enough hours in the week mm-hmm. where yeah. you could accumulate enough wealth to overcome that gap yeah. uh, because the system is not set up that way. And so we're living in a time and an era, especially coming out of the pandemic, we're living in an era of increased conflict, climate change, and COVID, mm-hmm. and so many other um, intersectional issues that it can feel really difficult to figure out what is that path forward? How do you make it work? Um, and how do you come up with structural solutions that really tackle not just poverty, but inequality and tackle opportunities? So you create opportunities for all. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what we can do in our own small ways to? help create opportunities or to, you know, help fight this this inequity? You know, it's a great question. There are, there are so many ways that we can think about our own privilege that mm-hmm. each of us bring, especially for those of us that get to maybe experience working in elite institutions or in environments or live in communities where we have access to resources or access to things that if we can think about how to connect the dots, um, the TIP program, actually, just mm. to go back to where we started mm-hmm. this conversation. Great. Um, you know, the TIP program was born not because we had lots of money or a funder coming in or a mm-hmm. big NGO or any of the ingredients you typically think about of a development program and scaling it up for success. The TIP program was born because you, I, someone had an idea that I have resources over here. Yeah. There are no resources yep. over there. Can we connect the dots? Yep. That is something all of us can do mm. in our everyday lives every single day. We yeah. can see the gaps. We can mm-hmm. see where we have wealth, privilege, resource, or access in a way that our neighbor does not. Is there something we can do to, to transfer some of that wealth, privilege, access, resource to somebody else where, and in some ways, it doesn't even mean any less for us. Yeah, very right? true. Um, And so that power doesn't just ally with the elite or those of us 
that you don't have to be in the top 1% or 10% to care. Sure. You could be a fifth grader who has an idea. Hmm. You could be a 12th grader. You could be a, a college junior. Um, the power to make change rests in all of us at any level, not just because you have an idea, but because you care. And it starts with that. And mm-hmm. I think there's so much you could do professionally, mm-hmm. personally. Um, and oftentimes it's just looking at that Rubik's Cube a little bit differently and seeing how you mm-hmm. can change some of those blocks up. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your thoughts on that, Fatima, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you. Um, given your breadth of experience, what advice on top of what you just uh, what you just shared with us would you give to young language learners looking to add to their knowledge base, looking to do something with uh, culture and language that they're absorbing and trying to pass on to others? You know, I often said... Um, if I, whenever I'm asked, if you, if you wish you had a superpower, what would that mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. right? And I always think about this question of if I could have a secret superpower. I already know my answer. My superpower that I would love to have is to be able to go to any location anywhere in the world and instantly be mm-hmm. able to speak that language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I say that out of all the superpowers I could have. My daughter says, well, don't you want a mom? Don't you want to fly? Like, <laughs> wouldn't that be your superpower that you could yeah. fly anywhere around the world? And I said, no, but I can fly on an airplane. I don't need my own wings to fly. Yeah. Um, I, say, I say the power of language as a superpower, though, because this, you know, if you have the ability to communicate with mm-hmm. someone different than you in a context that may be very different than what you are familiar or comfortable with, you get to change your entire experience mm-hmm. of what the world looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the richness of taking the time wherever you are in life, whether you're a student in college, graduate school, whether you are a 45-year-old mom looking to shake things up, mm-hmm. right? It never ends when you decide that you want to invest in lifelong learning. Um, to invest in lifelong language learning is such a superpower Um, And I would say that whatever you do, whatever careers you choose to have, maybe you decide not for a professional career at all and you're going to help raise a family. Whatever your it is, take moments to invest in lifelong language learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, It helps us connect and see the other in ways that politics alone, culture alone, history alone will never let us connect in, in that way. And in an era where we're so polarized and increasingly polarized from each other and where differences are hard to sometimes celebrate, I think language can help break down some of those barriers. Mm. And the more of us that take interest in communicating in other languages and being more multilingual um, is going to be one of those superpowers yeah. for us as 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 um one of those superpowers for humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really encourage for those of you interested in language learning to think about where you can lean in. And for those of you who've already discovered the love of languages, to keep showing the rest of us that that way forward. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I don't even, this is all giving me chills. Everything you've been saying, this is, this is wonderful, Fatima. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? So uh, if you're interested more in Harvard Center for International Development, please do check out our website. We're at cid.harvard.edu. We also have this amazing newsletter um, that goes out to our community. So please subscribe to our newsletter and you can learn more about the programs, events, and opportunities. 
We bring uh, so many incredible speakers to campus and, and have so many opportunities for those of you interested in helping us build a thriving world for all. And everyone's welcome to be part of that journey wherever you are in the world. Fatima, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn that doesn't exist in English, but you wish it did. What is your word? So I'm going to answer this in a really odd way. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I've always been obsessed in Spanish, and I don't actually remember what the verb uh, context is called. But in Spanish, for all of you Spanish uh, speakers, you have um, the verb text of the abas is what I call it, right? So like ablaba mm, is mm-hmm. I used to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also implies that you may still be speaking. And it's a continuum of time um, mm. in the past that exists in romance languages. And I wish that way of communicating existed in English, Mm. that in English we're very definitive that the past is the past, as if the Mm. past has no connection to the present or the future. And uh, I always really admired in Spanish, and I think in other romance languages as well, this concept Mm. Mm -hmm. of what I call the abas from ablaba and other AR verbs, for those of you that love to conjugate those verbs in Spanish (laughs) in the past, (laughs) uh, preterite or whatever that's called. (laughs) But this idea that something started in the past, you spoke, you ate, you thought, you read, you loved in the past, and that that can still continue into the present mm-hmm. and maybe even impact your future. Yeah. And I think using words and language to transcend time is Ugh. so incredibly powerful. And I wish English thought more like that sometimes. Mm. Yeah, well, well, we'll change that. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like we talk a lot on this podcast about how language learning, it's not just about learning how to communicate in a different way. It opens you up to new ways of thinking. Uh, And I think in a world where sometimes we can lose sight of the way that the past and the future Mm. are contingent on the present and and vice versa, um, I really really appreciate that answer. Thank you. Wonderful. Fatima, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. And thank you so much for the incredibly important work that you do every day. No, it's, um, I really want to appreciate Cornell's Language Resource Center, the incredible leadership um, that you show every single day with your students um, and your podcast and the fact that you're helping us think and communicate in lots of different ways, local to global. Thank you for the work you're all doing over here at the LRC. Our pleasure. We couldn't have thought of a better topic to end our 12th season and this year. We will be back in 2024 with new topics and guests. In the meantime, you can listen to our archived shows on our website at lrc.cornell.edu, on the Apple or Google Podcasts app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We wish all our listeners a wonderful, safe, happy, and healthy holiday season. Until next year. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners 
and do stay tuned for our next episode.